In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 382 a special team speak edition of the podcast featuring the no pro staff including leah davis patrick mclean laura hess blake Weil, and for the first time on the show parker sella our associate producer we recorded this a couple of weeks ago chatting about what we've been going to see and experience with a touch of what we're looking forward to the conversation ranges wildly, but I did want to put a note up that at about 50 minutes in, we get into a discussion and a description of artist Paul McCarthy's White Snow for about 20 minutes. That involves discussion of some pretty graphic imagery, and younger ears or those who just don't want to get into sexualized material may want to hop ahead. Look for the time code in the show notes, but again, about 50 minutes in, so probably about 55 an hour. There you go. All right, jumping to a different topic entirely. Uh, I know that some of you may be listening to this while you are at or on the way to South by Southwest. Well, on the site right now, you can find our South by Southwest FOMO guide, which has all the events and sessions we wish we were going to, from the activation for Showtime's Yellow Jackets to panels and talks from some of our favorite people in the Immersiverse. It's all right there at noproscenium.com, right there on the front page. You'll also find our latest review rundown and the call sheet for March, which has casting opportunities involving the upcoming Without Walls Festival in San Diego. As for the Patreon campaign, let's start with our latest backers. And there have been a whole lot as we take aim at our $3,000 a month goal, which is coming up in just five days when we drop this episode. Those latest backers are Ken Seed, Marinith. Those latest backers. Those latest backers are Ken Seed, Meredith O'Shaughnessy, Cameo Wood, Evan Broder, Inhalola, Randall Fujimoto, Carson Lee, Sarah Popek, Hamish Hamilton, Maya, and Jenny McAllister Eisenberg. Thank you all so much. You have brought us so close to that goal. Here's where we are right now. I, I dug into it and I saw that if we can get just $114 more in pledges in the next five days, be that through monthly or just a few annualized pledges, we will clear $3,000 for the month. It won't be $3,000 a month on the regular, but it'll be $3,000 for this month. And right now, because I really don't want to lower the paywall, that's going to be enough to push back lowering the pay paywall for the newsletter, at least till June. This is, this is no joke. We, we are in, I am in like an existential crisis on this one here, but I really don't want to have to do the paywall thing. But if we cannot clear that 114 uh, in the next five days, then we will go to a model where only subscribers get the newsletter. That will start in April. So there'll be a couple of weeks grace period to let everyone kind of jump in. Uh, who knows? 
maybe it'll be a good thing. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll clear up the problems we have in keeping this thing going. Uh, and then, you know, I won't, I won't be fretting as much all the time. In any case, as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash no proscenium guarantees your access to the newsletter and keeps making all of our coverage possible right now. It's, it's my only income source straight up. Okay. And I live in Los Angeles. If you're already a backer, drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. It helps immensely. We are always no proscenium except on Insta where we are no underscore proscenium. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And, you know, we're on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers or directly supporting the work through sponsorship. Hit me up at noah at noprocinium.com for details so we can keep doing this. Uh, we really like making all this for you. And now... Because you're getting a whole lot of us, uh, I'm going to come back at the end just for a real quick moment. So no big rant, because you're gonna, it, it's just a big talk episode. So let's get into it. As I mentioned in the cold open, which I haven't recorded yet... This is a gathering of the NoPro team. Uh, we've got members of the senior staff, members of the review crew, uh, a, a little different lineup than what we've had before. Uh, joining us on the pod today, we're going to start with Leah Davis. Hi, I'm Leah Davis, senior editor, and I'm coming at you from Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, tonight I'm drinking a, a mushroom root beer. Very cool. In Chicagoland... Hey there, it's Patrick McLean, uh, the Chicago curator, and I am drinking Waterloo uh, lemon-lime flavor. Next up, out there in Philly. Hey everyone, this is Blake Weil, the uh, East Coast curator. I'm having a cup of Earl Grey tea that is rapidly growing too cold to be pleasant. On the other side of LA from me... Hi, this is Laura Hess, arts editor. Uh, I am Sans Beverage. And joining us for the first time on the pod, a special treat, the associate producer of this podcast. Hi, I'm Parker Sella, uh, and I am drinking a really pretentious cup of mint tea. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, these episodes are just where we kind of check in with the team, find out what everyone's been checking out, doing, going to, plan. We're going to break this one up uh, as per our conversation before we start recording into essentially what we've been, pl what we've been playing uh, and then what we're looking forward to. So um, I wanted to, I'll just start because Leah, you got something this week that you're looking forward to, but what have you been digging into of late? Man, you had to start with me um, because- Yeah, I got to torture you. It's, it's part of the game. So. <laughs> I just- I feel like I've been in a dry patch. I've been looking for new stuff. Um, I've been going back to some tried and trues. So I, I picked up the, um, oh man, now I'm blanking on who put together this um, this packet of remote plays over Christmas, over the holidays. Um, and I've been playing those. Um, play in your bathtub, for instance. What Help me out here, somebody. 
play in your I was going to say Club Drosselmeyer, but that's not right because I know you no. did that. No. Was Wait, this play in your bathtub? Is this not an- this is not a theater company's? Yes. Yeah. That's, okay. Yes. Okay, I'm going to confirm that. Um, listen, I promise this has nothing to do with the quality of the production. I um, I just have no capacity to remember anything ever. It's a me problem. Um, but I've been going back and, and replaying with some of those. Um, I'm making some plans to get out to sleep no more again pretty soon. I've got some, some new baby immersives. Um, and otherwise, I'm kind of kind of waiting to hear what else is out on the on the horizon there so i'm looking forward to this chat all right drag me out when you go to sleep no more i haven't been in forever and i may have some first timers to drag myself so a little a little uh introducing the kids and uh hoping that they can debrief with each other while we obsess as old timers might be wise blake's always looking for an excuse to go to new york so any any excuse whatsoever Blake, you've been doing a ton lately, uh, according to what you just told me a second ago. <laughs> it got cut. Um, what have you been doing? Uh, what's been keeping you busy out there in Philadelphia? So it's it's been kind of an intense couple weeks. Um, I've been diving back into Lennox Mutual after a brief hiatus. As a heads up and disclaimer, I am friends with uh, Evan Knighton, the creator. Leah's like all but... upset because Leah's like, oh, I've been doing Lennox Mutual. And like, I was no. so shocked that Leah didn't mention Lennox Mutual. I haven't have been Lennox doing Mutual. anything, just no, 15. No, no. I have a Lennox Mutual call in uh, two hours and five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh my so God. I, I will just I will just clarify um, without spoilers because I know we should hopefully have some upcoming real time to chat deep on Lennox Mutual. That is the plan, I yes. finally hit, I finally hit sort of the 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 nougat center at the heart of the candy bar is the only way I can describe it. Um, there is such a layer of stuff going on at the top of Lennox Mutual, and I cannot say more than that once you get through that stuff and realize what it is you're actually doing in Lennox Mutual, there is sort of a moment of delight, abject horror, and intense, intense obsession that develops at exactly that moment. And I'm kind of regretting that I'm turning into Leah in terms of the depths of the way this is sort of colonizing my mind space right now this is the first time we've used like cameras like for one of these like in a long time and like leah and parker are mugging so much right now i just want to tell the listeners now they're laughing uh because like the thing that everyone doesn't know is like a lot of our editorial meetings just devolve usually into us making fun of Leah for not having written the review of Lennox Mutual yet and then just saying, but I've got another call coming up. So when Yeah, Leah I think we need to actually like figure out what is the current tally between just even Leah and Parker. But Leah, Parker, and Blake, I mean, what are we up to? We have to be up to like what, 50 calls? What are you, a cop? <laughs> I mean I'm responsible for Whoa, boys. <laughs> I'm responsible for six of those. That's that's right. as much as I can disclose. Um, but you mentioned earlier that I'm always looking for an excuse to get up to New York and to celebrate the end of the lungs in medical school. Hallelujah, the lungs are over. Um, I went up to cover 
the Order of the Golden Scribe Initiation Tea Party, and also went to see uh, Madness 1917, the next step in the paradox cycle at Doors of Divergence. Another great mugging from Leah. She's fuming that I went to see that without her. Um, I, oh, Lord, I, I'm going to see... Is it heresy or hearsay? What's happening? Heresy. Okay, but here's the thing. You need to see heresy first. Well, I know you absolutely need to see heresy first. So I am going to go see that in April. But the, the interesting thing that I've found is you can't pre-book for two people to see Madness. Um, so don't allow for, for private. Like, it's a very interesting logistical problem they're setting up. Um, Madness has some really interesting logistics just to the physical room itself that I don't want to get into spoilers on. But also the pre-booking is going to be difficult because it depends what ending you get in Heresy, what version of Madness you're in. And that can change things like staffing requirements. Oh, they've really built themselves a puzzle then because... You know, you you go to someplace like the basement, and if you want to do, you you can book like a run through the basement because it's all connected chapters. You, and also, like, who wants to go up to Silmar more than once if you if you can avoid it? No offense to anyone who's up in Silmar, um, but sorry, I I can say this though in their defense, which is that they actually do have a really good system in place for conversions and turning people over from one room straight into the next. They just need a few minutes of prep time. Okay. It's the pre-booking that's the issue. And so but why wouldn't once that, you but finish w- the but room- wait, But why would, why would that be an issue if like, because if Leah knows that Leah's going in on like April 15th at 11, why can't they schedule like- 12 30 on the 15th you know what i mean that might be just a little bit of either a website snafu or it could be that they don't want to lock in the codes for exactly what audio track is needed what props are needed what costuming is needed because these are very different um theatrical circumstances um needless to say i have been able to figure out that if i made one different decision in the last room, I could have been in another country in this room. I could have been in a completely different genre. I was in this sort of like, the only way I can describe it is it starts off as like a Catherine Hepburn, like his girl Friday, but set at like an old lobotomy practicing insane asylum but then it quickly like dives straight into horror at about the halfway point. It it rules. I, words cannot do this room justice. It is super, super cool. And paired with Order of the Golden Scribe, I'm just really kind of taken with the way that... Listen, I love escape rooms and I'm always going to go to them, but they're starting to feel a little bit played out in maybe their standard form, especially as people are starting to learn the tropes and tricks over and over, as people are able to go, oh, that bookshelf's going to swing open. So I feel like now that we're marrying the escape room form to different, more varied theatrical techniques, Mm -hmm. this is a really great way of keeping the genre not just alive, but thriving in a way that I haven't seen since like, I almost want to say like early 2019 when we were first starting. 
before the pandemic because that was right when we were starting to get those later generation escape rooms where there were no physical locks involved where you weren't having to deal with like weird little numerical code padlocks it was evolving people were starting to mix things up in a real way this is sort of the the next like Oh, I called it geological shit. Yeah, I mean, I called it I called it next gen in in the little write up I did for the rundown like a week ago, and I love that you're saying all this because now I don't feel like I was being hyperbolic for the sake of being hyperbolic. I mean, at the time I was, but now I feel fully justified <laughs> based on. You should feel fully justified. And I, I, the last thing I want to shout out before I'm desperate to hear what everyone else has been up to is. There is a really neat mechanic going on there where they've got basically the Manderley Bar from Sleep No More, but for an escape room as their lobby. Um, Mm. I I was joking after I saw the show, wow, I was so happy not to see the same awful Cracker Barrel puzzles um, in an escape room lobby. It is so much fun if you can go like 45 minutes early just so you have time to like kibitz with the performers enjoy a white claw and like listen to this wait hold on it stop stop enjoy how does anyone enjoy a white claw i don't i don't i'm gay i I enjoy them it's part of the puzzle noah the puzzle you have to solve is enjoy this beverage there's it's just a a cultural thing i don't i don't get i mean i'm not a millennial so like don't enjoy a white claw it's brooklyn they've got some like weird little craft beer with like five too many hops or oh something. no not not an ipa no bad bad you want something multi uh give me that bar menu next time you're there okay that's all i'm saying whichever one goes okay to. i'll i'll make sure i'll make sure to pass that note along the but menu. the point is i really enjoyed um i had a white claw and then i got myself a glass of red and just really vibed in this weird space where you know you're dealing with these sort of like oddball international around the timeline people i think when i was there we had a displaced girl scout troop leader um who was talking about all her like affairs from her beloved 1980s uh we had a 70s astronaut and we had like an 1870s poetess and this was just like a really fun motley crew to just all playing off each other in this space. So these it are is so much fun. Are these are the actors for the rooms who are just like the, doing this like is off where they kind of like this is where they keep the actors from the rooms in their off time. They've all developed these sort of unique characters and when they're not running a room, they're just chilling in the bar in a different persona. It is rad. That is very cool. That is like really 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 cool. Like that feels that feels a little bit like what I wish Oga's uh, was at. I mean, I love Oga's at Galaxy's Edge, right? Like, I love. But, but Oga's is such a finished product, right? At Galaxy's Edge, you know, it's so but, smooth. But imagine, imagine there were like smugglers and like bounty hunters like hanging out at the bar. I mean, it's so tiny, so like you 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 would lose so much of the profit <laughs> by sticking one actor in, but just like one or two performers. You know, hanging out. Now you're speaking my language. I feel like I have a confession to make here. Um, Confess. I got my tax rebate back, and I'm wondering how much of my soul I would have to sell to uh, go into a little bit of debt and maybe try try the star star cruiser. Uh, Star cruiser. I mean, everyone knows that if I was solvent, like I would have already gone probably more than once, but I'm not. 
some sometimes the, sometimes the the star cruiser team members that i know go like we gotta start a GoFundMe for you <laughs> and i'm always yeah. like i might let you um it's just, an important reporting trip uh <laughs> i mean it is but you know yeah i, I, but I justify that, it that ties into kind of an interesting topic that leah mentioned earlier but then you we all would have the same problem if we individually went to star cruiser would be that these things are scaled for groups and things like that. But Leah, you mentioned that it seems like doors of divergence has a three person. I'm just going to use the word minimum requirement for, to, to book it. And then star cruiser, when we looked at those numbers, when it originally announced, I haven't looked recently, like the price of to go for just one person was quite astronomical. But if you're part of a four person group or family unit, you can shave off literally thousands of dollars, if not oh, at least thousands. One. Yeah, yeah, like to make it a much worthwhile experience. And I think this is a kind of fascinating thing that in regards to we might be on the verge of another next generation of like immersive experiences that have actors and puzzles in them. But I feel like we are maybe it's just an unfortunate economic issue, especially right now here in mm-hmm. February 2023 uh, that. You last have day of to, February, by the way. <laughs> last day. Uh, I'm, this is for the person who's going to listen to it in a, a decade. And we have the problem of that, you know, we have to pay these people and they rightfully deserve it. But financially, these institutions can only work if it's large groups. And this is almost the same problem all art has, be it traditional theater or maybe some of the stuff like Laura goes to. You need constant flow. And until I mean, that's, we solve you know, that, do we really? Until we solve that problem, will we ever really break through to a next generation of experiences? I mean, so I always talk about this stuff, particularly like the the high end, you know, intimate immersive stuff is like the Michelin star dining, you know, the fine dining of experiential. And you look at something. I was having a conversation with someone today, um, you know, and pointing like, you know, Star Cruisers that. The locksmith's dream, which uh, Blake, mm-hmm. your sister Ellery, went to for us, uh, and she will not let me forget it. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I think I hear about that like once a week at least. If you want to talk about burrowing in someone's mind? That is that kind of like obsession generating nugget <laughs> that like I think we all live for. Yeah. So like, like you have you have this sort of stuff that's quite pricey, right? Um, and it's, it's for, for a normie, it's going to be, you know, trip of a lifetime type deal. Right. It's like, it's like when I dream of, you know, finally going to Tokyo and just lo- like losing myself for however long I can, um, or, or the same thing with like Dublin, right. Mm-hmm. You know, cause I'm, I'm not a well-traveled man. Um, but I, I, I live for travel. Um, and then there's stuff that is like the fast casual of immersive, which is how I described Stranger Things, uh, the Stranger Things experience that's going around, right? Like it's not the McDonald's of immersive. It's not fast food. Like there's there's quality ingredients, there's skilled performers who've been put in, and they've sort of spared no expense in in, in a couple of directions on putting the package together, but it's designed to get enough bodies through that volume makes up for, um, again, back to volume, right? Volume makes up for what the cost would be. And so that can kind of bring it down to what, you know, people who are curious would like to do. And they've got that big IP to play with. 
And in some ways, we're in a really great position because we have this, this widening range of offerings from both indie and corporate stuff. But I, I do think we're still in a place where, you know, sticker shock is going to blanch a lot of people. Patrick's I, I feel like we need a name or at least a metaphorical chain restaurant to be in between Michelin and McDonald's. Maybe we could say like McCormick and Schmicks. So Stranger Things feels like a McCormick and Schmicks to me. Like you're, you're going to get like a decent, fairly middle priced meal that's going to impress your in-laws uh, as oh they're doing fine, but like you know, you're, you're this is not necessarily. While there is definitely care put into it, there isn't the level of artistry you're seeing in this sort of Michelin metaphor right. theater. Well, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to push back on that. I don't think that that's. Um, I mean, I think that it's it's worthwhile to have this kind of debate and to try to unpack this, but I I think that we. Um, yeah, I just think that we're ve- I think there's incredible artistry in the Stranger Things experience and I think that we're um trying to potentially put certain elements into the wrong box. Um yeah, I I just think that Stranger Things is it's it's not I think it's clear on what it wants to be. I think it's clear on who it's for. And I think the execution was fantastic. And I get frustrated when I feel like we're trying to, not necessarily this group, but I've had other conversations with people in the industry and in different facets of the industry. And I feel like where people want every experience to check off every box and be for everybody. And that's not possible. And that's not what we're going for. And I think that Stranger Things for what it is, for what it's trying to be, it executed brilliantly. And I thought there was incredible artistry. I mean, you know, when I use fast casual, like I use that really specifically, uh, like in an advisedly way, because there, I remember when slow food happened, which happened like before fast casual happened. And there was this realigning of the values uh, when it came to how food was getting to more and more people. And, and there are days when like, you just want Chipotle, like, you know, there's a better real Mexican joint around the corner, but you actually are craving Chipotle and all of the ingredients are, are super solid and it is unique from, you know, what the, what the real burrito joint is going to be, um, much. And I'm someone from the Bay area where we do burritos for real. And like, there's some shame, but also Chipotle was, Chipotle was born by a, a Denver cook who served in in the in the Bay Area for a long time and like wanted to bring that back. So that's something I love about particularly the Stranger Things one is like it is folks who have made like the bespoke, unique little things all getting to play in this really big sand the the, the sandbox. Blake, your your your, yeah. your hand thing is like blinking at me angrily. I this is our first time, my first time using that hand raising software, and I didn't realize how aggressive it was. So please forgive it's okay. me for that. But no, I I just wanted to say, uh, Laura, I'm in full agreement. There there's an old review of mine. I think it was for for Obaken, uh, the Japanese haunted house uh, remote immersive, where I think I said that one of my favorite 
pieces, and definitely the most seen piece of immersive theater of all time is the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, that that sort of ticks off all of these, like, artistry boxes that we're looking for. I I guess, you know, revisiting the food metaphor for a second, even though I was just trying to escape its orbit, um, (laughs) you know, I just saw the menu, and this is, there is a difference. You talk about being all things to all people, and there is, you know, definitely art in kind of any well-executed, hitting-its-mark attempt. And I think that not every immersive theater needs to be the gel spherification, liquid smoke, uh, you know, edible cloud version of immersive theater. And I think that there is nothing wrong with saying that the Stranger Things experience is like the height of exactly what it is trying to be, and that the intent is so clear and so well executed that it's almost frustrating that there isn't there isn't a way to sort of categorize and then give five stars because that is the five star version of itself. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like there's different scales. Like it isn't really fair to compare a show at the Hollywood fringe, which might be incredibly brilliant with strange, you know, the stranger things experience to the star cruiser to, you know, burnt city. These are all in the same, they can, you know, there are performers and creatives who can swap between these things, but they, you know, a five in one place is, you know, it's a different kind of five. But that's also yeah, one guys, of the reasons why we are, don't run around doing stars on stuff because, like, it's apples to oranges and, like, everything gets turned into, like, rotten tomatoes. Like, this has got an 89% on no proscenium. It's like, oh, boy. Um, but I do we think are, we, we are need to make- like writing, writing the outer edge here because I, I encourage everyone to go out and um, look for Pete Wells's most recent op-ed he's the the restaurant critic at new york times uh and he had this come to jesus moment over the pandemic about stars specifically and about whether Mm. stars are about quality and value or whether like whether they can just be about rating something within the scale of its own merits um and where he kind of ended up was like essentially i want to give this sidewalk vendor five stars for being a great sidewalk vendor not saying five five stars as michelin rated etc um right well pete wells is also the Pete Wells also gave us that tremendous review of the Times Square Senor Frogs, where he was like, this is the greatest version of a Senor Frogs I've ever eaten at, and the experience I got here was absurdly valuable because, you know, while per se might have better food, the waiters will not do the cha-cha slide with you, and I did not have a birthday hat explode at per se. That's so, exactly like, right. What are they if doing, you slip a thousand dollars to a waiter at per se, they'll do the, they'll do the slide with you. <laughs> I've sorry, been told. That's right, and I, I I love that, and I think it's such a it's such a an enlightened space to be from a critic. That said, he did spend like how many decades creating that star system and like buying into it. So it was sort of getting getting him to the end to be like, this is a brilliant revelation I've had. Was sort of like, yes, thank you for that. I'm glad you're sharing it and saying it. But um, <clears throat> I I just do want to maybe to put a button on this really quick to because we've been going a little long. Is that I. I 
I think there's an issue in regards to also the accessibility of all of these experiences. Right now, Leah could book to go to the Strangers Things experience by themselves. They can do that for a Star Cruiser. But right now, with Doors of Divergence, they can't unless Blake is willing to drive down and have a free day to come to New York to make that group of three. And I think that's another <laughs> kind of issue. Tell me the day. <laughs> that, that's I'm there. I was like, oh, Blake's going to go because yeah, gonna- Blake's going to steer them towards the other track so Blake can unlock, you know, the alternate version of madness. Like you've just yeah. you've set up the day, you know. We're just a travel company for each other, basically. Allegedly, so. Blake is getting a degree in something. So I presume there's occasionally a few hours of the day when he's focusing on that. So, but the thing, I think that's just the issue is that, like, you know, I think we've gotten really good about making a variety of different tier options available uh, globally, nationally, online, even. But then I think there is occasionally still some not gatekeeping, but there is some access issue in regards to being able to see everything. And once again, I don't know if that's tied up into the economics, that's tied up into the age of uh, the form in which the experience is uh, shaped around, but it's, I just think it's something to think about. It's kind of everything, Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you pick, pick which thread it's the economics, it's the geographical, you know, nature of it. It's the demographical nature of it, right? Uh-huh. You know, something something that we note often in our editorial conversations and, and in this room in particular right now, this can be a very, and often is a very white space. And that is, yes. that is because it is part of a lineage of performing arts in America and small businesses in America, which tend to go that way. So changing who's making, who the audience is, creating access, right? You know, creating creating work that is interesting to people, right? You know, like there's plenty of people as as incredible as Doors of Divergence sounds, you know, there's going to be plenty of people who look at, you know, the, the, the breakout for heresy or look at the breakout for madness and be like, those eras do nothing for me. I've sure. got like, like this sounds incredible, but those eras – that that material does nothing for me. And we should be so lucky to get to the point when there's multiple things that are operating at the quality that Doors of Divergence are that can appeal to folks who don't want to go to World War I, don't want to go to witch trials. They want to go to, you know, Harlem Renaissance. And it's it's folks who who know what they're talking about building that exact kind of thing, right? You know, that's that's when this field, this genre, this medium has made it. When we can look across the breadth and say, we've got creators and we've got material that is as diverse as cinema. You know, that's 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 the objective there, you know, in terms of comparison. But yeah, um, Putting putting a um, putting a button on it. Uh, sorry to to do that. I wanted to uh, because there's there's a thing that Patrick and Parker, uh, who are my constant companions uh, for our weekly editorial meetings, uh, there's a thing they both uh, y'all both did. So there's a thing that you got to play. Uh, I don't know if played together or you just got to check out. Patrick, you wanna you wanna jump in and start this one? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I uh, it came across through everything immersive, and uh, this year I am trying to be much better about seeing remote work. Like even if I'm not reviewing it, I want to go there. I want to experience it. And this came across the desk uh, it, on everything immersive, and it was POV. You are an AI achieving consciousness. And just because logistically I passed on the review, I just was, I had two other things, one before and after, and I just didn't want to overload myself, but I still wanted to see it. And I saw it the day before the reviewer. And this is from uh, Cirque Saw, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I apologize if not. Hmm. And it was just really an incredibly refreshing experience. I think as we enter a we're we're absolutely in a post-pandemic world, and that I mean that we've just simply moved on from the height of uh, social distancing and masking and things like that. Last year, I did notice there was kind of a downpour in regards to the remote experiences. It seemed that during the holiday season, things like that, a lot of companies returned to or started planning in-person experiences, which is great and awesome. But then at the top of the year, there was actually a slew of them. And I went on this on just a kind of a total whim. And it was wonderfully delightful because I think for a while throughout this entire thing, we've had experiences where you just go to Zoom and you just talk to someone. And it's no different from your work meeting or catching up with a friend on FaceTime. It's just, it's a blur of being at the screen. But what happened with uh, POV is that they really got the sense of, you are in front of a computer or a device that has a keyboard and a bigger screen and you can touch it. You can interact with it. You can click it. And so what happens is, is you join this experience and you have these wonderful touch points. Maybe Parker, do you want to actually talk about like the experience itself? Yeah. I think one of the things that I liked so much about it that I feel other remote or at home immersive experiences don't always get is the fact that it, it I think the term is is digitally native like it could only have existed over mm. zoom and over these platforms it you know even you know some of the some of the shows that you see say over the phone or other things like that which I absolutely love could hypothetically be done in person you know you and the performer in a format like that but what I loved about this is the different technology they were using and to my understanding the technology that they built specifically for this experience or built and then involved in this experience could only have existed for the online platform um and it was just as patrick said you know engaging with it in a different way than you would engage with just a zoom call or with just a theater performance and sort of as the experience progressed, more layers were unlocked that had just been there the whole time, but your attention was called to this and that and the other uh, aspect of this technology and of the, the story and the, the premise of the whole experience, which I thought was super, super special. Um, and uh, I, I didn't think that at this point in the you know post-quarantine um, part of time that we're in that I would get to see something that would really put a shift in my perspective of how I was viewing digital and remote theater. Um, but this definitely, definitely did that, which was uh, remarkable. And I want to keep it. And I think just to piggyback on that really quickly is that it was, 
like I'm yes anding everything that Parker said. And I think what, what another layer to it is that it's using this proprietary tech um, to have a commentary on the tech. And it's our roles as participants, as well as the role of the performer that also embody the tech, amplify the tech, and just technology in general, uh, and what we've been going through the past couple of years with utilizing technology. So you sort of become, you sort of feel like you almost get sucked into the machine of the performance, this sort of metaphorical machine, but then the technology, the actual literal technology also amplifies that. So it felt like this incredible kind of, um, you know, technological virtuous cycle, but in this really sort of uh, like contemplative and ex- like existential way. Yeah. And I want to be cagey about getting into specifics because I know they have performances through March 18th. I don't know if they're fully booked right now. Go to everythingimmersive.com and find out. But uh, I, I, the, the one sem- sentence slug line would be this is that you, every audience member is a computer program who has encountered this kind of master program who is asking questions for the very first time. And then together you go on a journey of self-discovery, both through um, actual communication, but then also through using this click slash touch point interface uh, to make connections in the questions you're asking. And Hmm. uh, and, and I think a big part of this, and I think a, a through line of all of our comments is that there was an incredible amount of intentionality here that was on point, that there was at every point you could take a step back. It was actually maybe even too tight in a way because I saw the intentionality, like specific decisions had been made to heighten the drama, but then also the action and then additionally, we clipped along at a very fast pace. It was only probably a 40 to 50 minute experience where I think. Um, shorter I'm, than this podcast. It's, yeah, it's going to be shorter than this <laughs> podcast. Uh, and I do think that I, I go back and forth. I think if once again, if you have the intention, you are more than welcome as a remote experience to go longer than an hour. But I think you really need to be like, do we need those extra time? And I thought that between Mm. the message and and then understanding how the audience was going to use this, because it's a proprietary software, as Laura said, this was the first time I encountered this. I didn't have any issues understanding what to do and how to do it, where there's been Zoom shows that I've gone to. Um, I I know a lot of the staff loved uh, Echelon and had a lot of great experience. I constantly struggled with Eschaton. that interface. Eschaton, thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you for calling me out. Uh, I struggled with the interface. I didn't know what to click, where to go. And like, it, it wasn't complicated. It was like images and things, but I got kind of left behind because I didn't see you anyone. I knew they were off in little tiny rooms where with POV, there, there's a, a short learning curve, but we're talking 30 seconds and then you're in it. I'm not sure maybe mm. uh, Parker uh, or Laura, you had similar thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the the software was very intuitive, but more than anything, um, the performer, Nicole Urbana, I think I'm pronouncing that, their last name correctly, um, was 
phenomenal in getting us through that learning curve and getting us right away into that on-ramp. And I'm, I'm sort of listening to the words that we're saying right now and thinking, you know, if I was hearing us talk about it like this and I didn't know the show, would I be interested? And I was like, oh, I think I feel like it sounds very pretentious what we're saying, but this show was witty. It was quick. It was smart. I had a smile on my face. I laughed out loud. It was all of these sort of like high level things that we're saying, but it was also simply a fun time with really great text performed excellently, like on a very surface level. Um, that was one of my favorite things about it was just how quippy it was. Awesome. I'll tell you what, guys, there are, there are, in fact, tickets available still. I just booked two of them for <laughs> Doing what we do best, which is selling each other on shows and going to things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that up in a second. Uh, but I hadn't realized that it was, it's, a, it's free. Um, it's a free ticket. Yeah. You can donate for it. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and Parker, I'm really glad you brought up the fact that it's witty and fun because, you know, we, we love to analyze and dig in everything, but uh, it, it, we often take it as red. It's like, oh, well, we were enjoying this, which is why. But I think it is important to call out why something is fun and, and, and pointing out the wit, pointing out the skill of the performer. That's Thank you for doing that. Um, I want to pivot over to Laura because it is art season in LA. Like the season has begun in earnest. Um, usually because, you know, ah, it's winter in Los Angeles. That's not a thing. Let's do a bunch of art shows because we can. And, and <laughs> silly Los Angeles, we got blizzards this time, but there's been a ton of stuff and you've been going out left and right. So um, what's, what's been there and what's it got you thinking about? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, just casually, uh, here's my theme. I'm, I'm really crabby about crabbiness. Um, and, and what I mean by that, and this, this actually, I think, um, carries over into, or there's overlap with our conversation around like the, you know, star ratings and, um, and even analysis, like having this analysis about POV, but then also saying like, it's just a great time. It's, it's, it's fun. It's witty. Absolutely. So in the art space, um, I've gone to a couple of shows recently that I'm always really interested in what other people have to say. Like, I, I certainly have my own taste and I feel confident in my own taste and my own evaluations, but I'm also really interested in how other things, um, how things land for other people. And, and, and one of the things um, that I got kind of crabby about is there's this really beautiful show that I wrote about that's in the rundown for this week. And it's a Turkish artist who's based in LA. His name is Rafik Anadol. And the show is at the Jeff Jeffrey Deitch Gallery. And it just opened. And this is just um, really incredibly gorgeous work. Um, it does use artificial intelligence. Um, he is collecting a massive amount of data which then goes through all of these processes. The data is scrubbed of any kind of human identifier, uh, you know, names, faces, all of that. And then he controls also even like, for example, the learning rate for these different neural networks. So there's a lot of thought and care that goes into this process that is also using AI, but AI is... A tool, and he actually refers to it as a thinking brush. Um, mm. 
And, um, and he refers to, he uses data as pigment. Um, and it's, Ooh, I like that. yeah, it's really lovely. And like this, this just kind of dials back into again, like a lot of our themes of this conversation and other conversations, like what is the intentionality? Who is this for? Does it have to check off every box? Um, and I know I've said this now a number of times and I'm not trying to be a broken record, but I'm really worn out by some of these like projected art conversations where people have just decided that like carte blanche, they're worthless and that they're just a cash grab. There's no value. And I absolutely agree that there is a spectrum of quality. Um, I absolutely agree that there are ways that we can make those better. We can amplify those. But I think one of my biggest issues lately is this idea that across experiential, that agency is king. And agency doesn't necessarily have to apply in every context. It doesn't have to apply for every production. And there were some write-ups about that I came across about um, Rafik Anil's work. Some is current. It's in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, there was also some other stuff that was written a couple of years ago. And just really dismissive, you know, we're in a kind of like hot seat right now around uh, AI and specifically like in this case, AI generated art. And um, I think these are really worthy conversations, but I'm really frustrated by people that are just writing things off and not taking the time to dig in. We don't all have to agree, um, but I think really trying to have these thoughtful assessments and not just saying like, well, if it's AI generated art, it's bad. Or, you know, um, and we can pivot to this in just a moment to Paul McCarthy's massive installation, White Snow, that you and I both went to, but separately. And mm -hmm. that has a different. Uh, so everyone knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that has a different kind of end of the spectrum in terms of like desired emotions and undesirable emotions. And in this case, in Rafik Anadol's case, it's really beautiful digital art. And I think that it's easy to just write it off as like vacant. And as one critic said, um, who, who did actually call it a little vacant, that was the quote, and also said um, that it was akin to an extremely intelligent lava lamp. Which actually, that made me laugh. Like that descriptor made me laugh. I wouldn't be insulted by that. I have no idea for Fikan at all is insulted by that. <laughs> but I, but I also think it's it's. Um, I think it's just it's glib. And I think our 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 roles as critics, um, I, I just think it's easy to be like, oh, it's beautiful, and thus it has minimal value. And then we can get into white snow by paul mccarthy which is really disgusting and grotesque and i think it's easy to say oh that's disgusting and grotesque and has no value and i reject both of these i think that there is value in so much of this whether it's beautiful or disgusting and so just for the benefit of the audience at home yeah. uh i am i am googling these pieces from my desktop as you talk but could you give us just a quick summary of like what you are looking at and walking through in these gallery spaces. Of specifically of Anadol's work. And of White Snow. No, I'll take White Snow. I am hearing a what, visceral, yeah. hateful reaction yeah. to that. In a good way. I'm not saying like you hate the piece, more just like it evokes a strong disgust <laughs> in a very intentional way. Yeah. And I I want to hear you articulate 
Well, I'll, the, I'll the take I'll, 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 I'll take I'll take White Snow because I can encapsulate. I had very long. Co- I took Shivana Lachlan uh, uh, to to go see that, and we were there for fifteen minutes and absorbed it, and then we're like, cool. And 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 some of that was thanks to like Laura had said something earlier in the day. Uh, the day I went, they made me go, huh? So I'll, I'll take some of that. Uh, but Laura, you break down break down what we're what you see at uh, Rafik's show, right? So. Okay, a Rafik show, which is incredibly well executed. It's very thoughtfully done. So this particular show is called Living Paintings. And that's exactly what they are. So this is, this is digital art. It's animated. Um, there is one massive wall. It is 40 feet long, this massive LED wall that goes straight to the floor. And you do kind of look like, it, it does kind of look like you are viewing a pixelated lava lamp. The particular... Um, pieces that are incorporated on this loop. Um, It's like these cascades. It's pixelated cascades. This is all based on, this particular show is all based on California-related data sets. So some of that's ocean, some of that's wind, uh, some of that's national parks. But you are looking at these incredibly saturated colors. And there's certainly variation. There's also a section called Coral Dreams. and so some of these are a little bit more kind of like identifiable shape, organic shapes, um, and some is just completely abstract. But you're looking at this incredibly beautiful, saturated movement, and it's incredibly vibrant. In the rest of the show, there's much smaller works that are framed animations. There's a couple of re- relief sculptures Um, There's also a mirrored infinity room that apparently toured around the world. And yes, of course, it's very Instagrammable. It's also delightful. I had an incredible amount of um, kind of sensory movement, a little bit of, of like, you know how if you're right, like when you're a kid or maybe an adult and you ride a bunch of roller coasters or you're in the ocean all day and you get off the roller coasters or out of the ocean and you still feel that movement, you kind of feel that visceral response in this room. So very visually stunning. And also I personally had a real kind of physical response and then there's also the largest artwork actually in the entire show is a process wall. And uh, Anadol explained to the LA Times that this is really all about trying to demystify the AI, the AI and what it is doing. Um, and I thought that was a, a key component to understand for this particular painting. He's using these data sets and this is how it's incorporated. So you don't feel like again, it doesn't feel gimmicky in any way. It feels incredibly like there's real artistry, there's real vision and creativity. Um, And from from that like beautiful kind of mood of Rafik Anadol, I'm going to throw it over to Noah for White Snow. And and I think there's another conversation to be had about unpacking, you know, AI art, AI assisted art. There's there's a lot going on there uh, between aesthetics and intellectual property and and but you know sounds like what Rafik is doing is very different from the kind of mid journey, you know th- those sorts of tools. Uh, something that doesn't really engage labor issues uh, because you know 
one, Rafik is using it as a, a tool, as a brush, as paint, uh, and is crunching data to create you know visualizations. It's it, right. but these are thorny issues. White snow. Um, Paul McCarthy's not McCartney's. Uh, try try and Google it. You'll you'll make a mistake. It's it's fun. Um, White Snow is a piece uh, that was done, uh, I think, originally over a decade ago or just about a decade ago. Um, it is both a large-scale installation and all there is a film component of it. In, indeed, uh, much of the installation is a recreation of the artist's home where the film was made uh, a decade ago. Uh, McCar- uh, McCarthy is, uh, he's like 77 now or, or thereabouts. Um, it has been, uh, a very well-established installation sculpture artist, uh, taught at UCLA, uh, famous, well-renowned, uh, and known for doing transgressive pieces, like very transgressive pieces. Uh, there was one, uh, that was, uh, a Christmas tree, uh, that was quite obviously, a, a butt plug uh so like this this is the kind of you know juxtaposition humor dialogue that you're getting into so uh this piece uh is was staged uh for for this show uh they're a, a very large warehouse kind of sound stagey space in east los angeles um uh when you entered uh, the first thing you were confronted with was the sounds of people having what sounded like very raucous, uh, possibly slightly violent sex uh, being boomed out throughout the space. There was up on uh, up on a frame uh, on an elevated platform, there was a large installation uh, that you could walk up a set of stairs uh, to get to for viewing and kind of view at waist height uh, the the floor of this. There was this uh, uh, sculpture of trees, very large trees, uh, uh, kind of slick, uh, maybe a little mucusy even. Uh, you just just kind of bulbous in their in their shape. Uh, and inside, deeper into this kind of forest uh, view, uh, there was uh, a, a small home or, or house or hut. It was a little hard to tell. You could not enter into this installation. Um, you could only view it from the outside. If you went to your left, as, as I did, um, you found yourself in a kind of gallery space. There were some rugs on the floor uh, and Above projected were three or four large projections of a video loop. Uh, this is a, a multi-camera seven-hour uh, video loop of um, uh, basically um, a, a, a porn version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, for lack of a, a, a another way of describing it, because that's exactly what it was uh people uh were there was a a a young lady who was having uh sex with the various dwarves uh the dwarves uh, i think there was also sort of a uh there might have been like a walt disney-ish figure who was uh when we walked in um uh being being violated in a specific way i will say i don't want to get into too much detail here um and uh and there was a lot of what looked to be uh, fecal matter, uh, just kind of like all over the spot. 
Um, if you passed through that zone uh, slowly or quickly, I also want to, I want to preface here. Uh, it was, I did like minimal research going into this one. Uh, a friend uh, who, who I know has like some, uh, kind of extreme proclivities. It was like, are you going to go to this show? And I was like, I'm thinking about it. And then I saw that Hauser and Worth um, uh, was was behind it. And, and Blake's Blake's going like, this is a lot, and not what I got from the press release. And this is the thing: there, in none of the write ups I saw. There's there's no. It says like 17 and over, right? But there's no word that you're going to see any of this stuff. Like, there's no trigger warning. Yeah, right? you know, I I was expecting. No, they don't do that. That's not, that's not, that's, not this. That's that's not that's not. No, and even from the pictures that I saw, like I thought there was going to be some things that touched on it, but not to the to, to the extremity. Like at points, it sort of felt like, oh, it feels like I've fallen down some really old something awful forums, um, and I uh, I you 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 pass through that if you're going on the the kind of clockwise you pass through the video gallery you come on to the other side of the 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 what you now realize is a shit forest um and can see uh the house a little bit better um the the sort of fecal nature of the trees becomes a little more obvious now that you've seen so much fecal matter or something purporting to be fecal matter uh, and there's some figures in the space uh, that are uh, sculptural of, of, of characters. Um, and then if you pass into the next room, go continue to go clockwise, uh, there's then some chairs set up, some video monitors set up. It is, it is more of, of the, the loop. And then there is a three-quarter scale model of the home, uh, which you can move around it, like the full home, and there are various scenes that have been recreated uh, from the video, uh, usually just like sort of aftermath, but there are also a few um, uh, dolls, mannequins in there that are in uh, sort of final stages of their existence, like their corpses at this point, uh, that have been either mutilated in one way or another, uh, and again, lots of what appears to be, you know, fecal matter, like all around. And I was in there for about 15 minutes. I was like, oh, I get this. Um, like I, I, I grok what's being done. Like the, the urge to shock the inversion of fairy tales, um, dive deep enough and enough things where like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't moved one way or, uh, or another, like the needle didn't move in me. Uh, my friend who was with me and Siobhan was with me. Uh, Siobhan felt nauseous. Laura had said earlier in the day, um, cause I'd asked like, well, how long can we be in there for? You know? Cause like they had timed entries every hour. I was like, oh, did you stay? Like, could you be in there longer than an hour? There were people that I was meeting up with who like, I was like, oh, they're going to before me. Maybe they'll be around. And Laura said, you probably could, but I got nauseous and left. And I sat through the rest of the day wondering why Laura got nauseous because there was like things in the waiver for this that was like, you know, if you touch, you know, touching a thing and like making sure you're behaving. And if you're feeling, if, you're, if someone's feeling ill or if there's like someone of a, a, a younger age feeling ill, you make sure you move them away from the thing and da 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 da. Like a lot of stuff that felt more like we were going to 
a fully interactive immersive experience that might get into some extremities or maybe something that had a tilt a whirl so i kept on imagining that maybe there was a tilt a whirl as part of this and that's why laura was nauseous and not realizing because there was you know fecophiliac porno stuff going on uh which you know if you get the right lens on it if you if you put it in the context of the rest of you know mccarthy's work uh and and you and you you accept the analysis of, you know, what, you know, this is commenting on, then, you know, it all makes sense. Uh, but it's very much designed to either cause revulsion or cause titillation uh, if you're not revolted by these things. Uh, but it can also land flat like it did for me. Where I was like, oh, yeah, there's that. And, and, and that I found was well, what's kind of interesting. Like, what's interesting about this is that McCarthy himself says that. Um, so I stayed for an hour and felt really ill um, by the end. Um, and I think that uh, so so the part that so it is it's four channels. Um, the film part is four channels, seven hours total, and. Um, the, some of the video that was looping when I was there um, was not so much around um, Snow White, but who, in this case, you know, everything is inverted, uh, white snow. So it wasn't so much the um, sort of orgy romp or whatever. Um, it was incredibly fecal centric and just made me so ill. Um, because, and, and made me feel so ill in, um, in particular, not just because of how it was shot and the angles and how graphic and how like, um, just exaggerated, let's be clear, graphic, really graphic. Um, but also there was kind of this overlap between sexualizing, you know, this sort of fecal fetish and, um, you couldn't tell if these particular like moans by the princess character were, were was she straining or was she climaxing? Ugh, let's not and go so into the, too much detail. <laughs> no, no, no. But so the point yeah. being that like, okay, so this is, so, so that's what this is. So, um, and I didn't know, I had seen sculptures of McCarthy's. Um, I didn't know uh, hardly anything about the film work. And I think there were a couple of really interesting things to unpack here. And I'm working on an op-ed about this. So the last time that this was shown was the only other time this was shown. And that was in New York in 2013 um, at the Park Avenue Armory. So we've got, we've got a decade between these two exhibitions. And what I was trying to kind of unpack for myself is like, what does this mean about experiential? And how, what are our expectations of experiential? And we, we talked about some of them just a minute, you know, at, well, at the top of the conversation. Um, and a minute ago, I was talking about expectations around, um, you know, AI-generated art, et cetera. So there were a couple of things that happened when I went to White Snow. One, I was massively frustrated that I couldn't go in the forest. I, I mean, this is- Oh, yeah, a, me too. I thought it was huge. way, we'd be way more interesting if we could walk around the shit forest. Right. right. So I think this is like, what does that mean that there is this, I mean, these are 24 foot tall trees. This is a huge installation. And to have this incredible build and to not be able to go into it where I think that we have adopted these, um, I mean, kind of an entitlement, like I should be able to go explore that 
you know, I have this sort of sleep no more complex. Like I should be able to run around in that forest and, 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 and root around. And so I had this real visceral reaction that I couldn't go into the forest. And I was so frustrated by that. And then you're, so you're thrust into what does feel kind of normal to us of this like voyeuristic or what can feel normal to us, this kind of voyeuristic role, again, a la Sleep No More and numerous other productions, where you're looking at this three-quarter scale house and these kind of horrors within. But there's so much also that you are restricted from. So I think there's a lot of tension that is played with here that, again, on its surface, there is, I mean, I certainly, like I said, I was so nauseous and I was like, I want to get the fuck out of here. Like, and at the same time, I thought about that installation. I talked to people about it. I looked up a bunch of stuff. I was reading about it. It clearly had a huge, I dreamt about it. Like I, it had oh. a huge impact on me. And so this is where I feel like it's easy to say, okay, it's, it's grotesque and he's just going for shock value. A, that's actually not what he says as an artist in terms of what his goals are. And sure, could we kind of write off Paul McCarthy as either a total pervert and just be like, he's a pervert and his, his work is just a manifestation of that. Or, um, or sort of what can often happen in the art world where, okay, he's, 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 just going for shock value and and he's a genius and we're just going to elevate his work because it's so shocking or it's so depraved. But I think that there is much deeper analysis that can be done around what does it mean if something has a massive impact on us, but it's an undesired emotion. I don't want to feel nauseous and I feel kind of nauseous actually just like talking about it and thinking about it. But like, that can still lead to transformation, which is ultimately what all of these experiences, what we're hoping to get from, what I think most creators are trying to, to lead to in some way, big or small. And so I think that there is more value in saying like, okay, it did not make me feel good. And I think there is so much value in that. There's, there's, and Blake's got something. Uh, I'll, I'll go to Blake in a second. Um, I, I feel, I feel bad for you that you like you, you, you dreamt of it. I mean, the, the funny thing to me is, I talked a lot about it that evening with the person I saw it with, uh, and, you know, a week later, another person who had seen it, who, who was in before me, uh, we like part of our conversation like covered it, but kind of a blip, but. By the next day, I'd I completely forgotten it, right? Like it was just like it, it, it just, it just slid right off. Um, you know, I can recall all the details. Like I can, I can memory palace myself back there right now. You know, like it's, it's in the brain, but it's just, you know, it's not, it's not bounce around up there. So I think part of this comes down to also, you know, a bit of the eye of the whole eye of the beholder stuff. Um, and I'd be, I'd be very curious, uh, you know, given that, you know, the artist is of, you know, literally is a year too old to be a baby boomer. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if they were doing it all over again, would they create channels so that people could move through, 
um, the space, right? It would have been sort of not a thing people were doing as much, right? An installation wasn't necessarily a thing you you would always move through. Like, wasn't conventional to like be surrounded by something. Or would they continue to like you know? Oh no, like I want you on the outside looking in. I want the voyeuristic you know expression of this. Um, so, jumping in on that note exactly, I just wanted to kind of point at least one finger to a counterexample in the form of Ragnar Kjartansson, who has his installation work going way back. We're talking uh, The Visitors, Woman in E, and whether you like him like I do or think he's a little bit pat, a little bit trite, like a lot of people I know do, there really was kind of early agency, earlier agency, I guess, in a pre-immersive boom space that I would, I would at least place some weight on in viewing the voyeuristic intent behind not giving you that freedom and range of motion. Um, the other thing that just came to mind talking about this is just sort of this real give and take that I think I'm seeing play out between what you're saying, Laura, and uh, what... Leah has been saying about kind of immersive giving us a safe Leah's been saying this in the chat uh, a safe space well, actually Leah exploring. break out what you said in the chat because I think it's valuable so how, how dare you expose me as a as a chat chatter um, <laughs> that's fine go for it Leah though <laughs> Laura you were saying that, uh, that that creating this space in white snow that was really to allow people to feel truly disgusting emotions did have a certain amount of value. And I was over here on camera just snapping because um, I I think one of my main arguments for immersive and for large, for people to experience this kind of stuff, even if they don't think they're interested in it, is that this is one of these places where we have access to and people can create safe for lack of a better term spaces um, to experience these emotions and feelings and stories that we wouldn't necessarily want to experience in the wild. So, so yeah, disgust is absolutely something that we should be embracing in, in art because it allows us to, to learn how to deal with it in real life or, or, or perhaps avoid it in real life um, without, without, depriving ourselves of some of this basic human experience. So I, I super, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm super ambivalent. I am very kind of torn between the points here because I'm seeing in Noah's reaction of, Oh, that's what this is. A lot of what my own reaction was when I went to see blackout of this sort of, assaulting relentless revulsion that eventually results in a sort of numbness to engagement that you know there is only so far that i feel like you can engage with something that has i'm not even talking about a morally repulsive or you know personally repulsive element but like a viscerally repulsive element you know when you're dealing in fluids and waste products there is i think almost like a self-protective measure where people just kind of shut down and go oh this is what it is and so while i am super in agreement with you leah that we do need space to explore these safely and with some level of balance i'm also wondering 
at what level something like this becomes self-defeating. But then again, to Laura's point, that's good art. I mean, if I'm thinking about the nature of art, if I am thinking about, you know, my own, not just the material, but my engagement with that material, then I think it has achieved an aim of art, even if it wasn't the specific and individual aim of this piece, which I can't speak to. But it's it's certainly provocative in a way that good art is outside of shock value. But I do wonder about that level of sort of like thought killing repulsion. Well, there's there's thought killing repulsion, but then there's also just like, you know, if you're jaded in the right way, then, you know, there's no shock. You know, you walk and go like, yep, that seems to be the logical, out, you know, follow of where, where this is going. Okay, I get it. Uh, or yeah. if you know you're, you're... <laughs> go for it, Leah. Yeah. No, God, no! I was I was prematurely changing the topic. I'm so sorry. Oh no, we and 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 I, and I should appreciate it. Like we've got we've got we've we've blown like an hour and twelve, and like I think <laughs> we've been talking about white snow for the past feels like twenty minutes. Um, but like, and and also we're not gonna we're not gonna resolve art today. Like like we we solved art, everybody. You know, like it's it's not it's not it's it you know. The right, the right person going to that show, or the person, the person who needs to be shocked, right? You know, the person who's going to get in there, it's going to click something. Um, but you know, it's it's going to fall differently for a lot of different people. One of the things we promised at the top of this was that we were going to do what we're looking, what we're looking forward to. Uh, we don't have the time to do all that right now, so I just want to like go quickly around the horn. Uh, and Blake will start with if there's anything with you, cause I know you actually have the least of, of things. So Blake, we're going to start with you. Give everyone's time a chance to muster up what it is they're looking forward to. Uh, let's say it for the next, for the rest of the season here in the spring, what, what might be the twinkle in your eye? Uh, we'll do the speed round version of this. Blake, we'll, we'll start with you. So, well, most of my time, yes, Patrick, will be spent actually on my schoolwork. Um, I'm really looking forward. Uh, there's the Disney 100 exhibit going on at the Franklin Institute that's supposed to have some really interesting immersive museum design elements. And I have been percolating for years a probably ill-advised idea for a feature on immersive museum design for both good and for evil. So I'm very curious to see this just based on my own personal <laughs> obsessions. And then speaking of art and museums, I am really, really, really thrilled. Uh, the Grounds for Sculpture, which is this giant, gorgeous sculpture gallery out in New Jersey, um, big outdoor exhibition space, lush, acres and acres, uh, they have a big exhibit called Night Forms that I was not able to see in the fall, but got an extension. And I am working on sometime in the next couple weeks going to go see that. It looks bananas. Uh, some really good, really interesting projection art um, worked onto the really unique and bizarre sculptural forms that this gallery has so that is something i am incredibly excited for all right uh patrick let's pop over to you and then i'm gonna run to parker and then laura and then leah and then i'll i'll cap it off yeah and i i would actually say that noah you and i have some of the same stuff on our agenda the i think the biggest thing being the xr live festival that's going to be occurring this march just 
tomorrow. Uh, it starts, but there's it's actually a underway. Yes, I mean, it's actually, it's under. It's already been underway for a couple of weeks, but it is is running through this whole month. Right, and the, I think it's getting going. And this features a lot of things that we have covered before here at Novorcinium. There's uh, Alien Rescue, which I know Noah's a huge fan of. Uh, there's Welcome to Respite. Uh, chapter one, this is not a new edition, but there's a whole bunch of stuff from the Ferryman Collective. But then there's also a bunch of new stuff that I haven't had a chance to see because of technology, uh, technology issues and things like that. So I'm really looking forward here next month to putting my quest uh, to the extreme and trying to see what I can do and where I can go in the virtual spaces. Parker, what's uh, what's on your radar? Well, like we were talking about uh, a little bit before, uh, I have calls 20 and 21 of Linux Mutual on my schedule. Um, so excited to continue uh, flipping the pages in that book, diving in a little bit further. Uh, and then also coming up locally for me here in San Francisco is We Build Houses here from Detour Dance. Um, I'm not familiar with the company. I haven't even seen anything at this location that they'll be at, but I've heard nothing but awesome things. Uh, so I'm super excited to see a little bit of in-person uh, immersive, which doesn't come to the Bay Area as much as I wish it would. Uh, so in my in my very own backyard, I'm looking forward to that. Laura, it's still busy season. What's next on your agenda? Yeah, um, there's a beautiful sort of like crocheted underwater coral installation that's opening at USC. And I'm headed to Desert X. I'm trying to figure out also a trip up to Sonoma area because there's a, a winery that has a massive world-class, uh, like large scale sculpture collection. It's called the Donum Estate and they do art tours. And I mean, they have art by Ai Weiwei and Doug Aitken. And oh, it's, wow. so I'm, I'm hoping to, um, I've been very conservative with my travel for the past three years, and I'm trying to figure out if I can maybe crack that open a little bit. Um, yeah, so there still is, uh, there's the Daniel Arsham, there's two Daniel Arsham exhibits opening at Orange County Museum of Art, and then also within LA at the um, Peterson Automotive Museum. So we're very, very spoiled. Oh, we are we are definitely spoiled on the installation art and sculpture front right now. Leah, what's uh, what's popping up on the horizon here? Well, uh, I'm prepping for Intercon U this weekend, which is uh, the premier multi-genre live-action role-playing convention in the world, according to their website. And uh, what this is is it's a bunch of of parlor LARPs, these small two to six hour games um, packed over the course of maybe three or four days. It's in Warwick, Rhode Island. And I am really excited to be playing a handful of these. Um, I've got a game called Before the Ordeal, which is about four squires going through um, a bathing ritual as they decide whether or not to become knights. Um, I'm playing a game called Adrift on a Starry Sky that, uh, speaking of safe spaces to, <laughs> to discover emotions, this is a serious game with science fiction themes uh, lasting four hours, and it explores what it means to be human, the limits of endurance, and the human will. Um, and since I'm, I'm confident this is going to go out after this game plays, um, my, my character secret is that I am the shipborne AI that uh, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm playing the ship, so I'm excited to figure out how this works. Well, now uh, I can't run this episode earlier than I intended. So uh, <laughs> now we're locked okay, into okay. The, the Friday after this one. So that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and um, switch things up. And one beautiful little cozy LARP that I'm, I'm really excited to play is called Between the Penthouse and the Lobby. Um, and this is a game um, about what happens to 12 uh, females, 12, 12 women who are dealing with very different life problems when their elevator shuts down. And uh, you have you have three hours to sort of live your lives in this space. And three you know what? Finally, to, to role play being trapped in an elevator. In an elevator with people that you may or may not need to confront. Um you know, and the one the reason that I signed up for POV is because the last game that I'm signed up for is one that I have played before uh, remotely called Here Is My Power Button by uh, B. Atwater. And it's a beautiful game about, um, about AIs learning that they are AIs and learning what it will mean, what means. Um, Leah, do you suspect that you might be an down. AI? That's what I'm kind of getting. You're playing the shipborne AI. You're going to shows about AI. I'm, are you? I'm not saying that I get typecast or that <laughs> my favorite show for a period of time was Dollhouse or that maybe I would absolutely become a host. But, you know, it has been it has been said. It's been Cecil said. Motive Functions. Sorry. Uh, uh, what, that didn't sound like anything to me. <laughs> Very good. Sorry, just I couldn't resist. It was too. It's all too good. <laughs> um, dragging up the rear here. Uh, I'm very curious as to what our friends over at After Hours Theater Company have been cooking up with the Shakespeare Center of LA because they're tackling uh, a Tempest production. Um, I can't do the review for that one, so we gotta we gotta find who's tackling the review. Kevin or Laura will will be will be put into, into the channel. Um, and then I hope I can score a ticket actually. Um, gotta go, gotta go talk to Graham, get, get on that action there. Um, but, uh, there's that. And then, uh, later in the season, uh, without walls will be happening down in, uh, San Diego. I do believe there's a preview, uh, something they're going to lay out some of the stuff and I might get a chance to go down to the preview and, and have a better sense, uh, in a few weeks of what exactly I've heard some rumblings, but nothing's been announced. Uh, if the rumblings hold true, uh, there's some really good treats headed headed down Wow's way. So hopefully that all that all works out. Well, uh, this is one of our semi regular uh, ones of these, uh, and we've only been recording for an hour and twenty one minutes, and I'm only incredibly hungry. Uh, so I'm gonna <laughs> let us go, Leah, Patrick, Blake, Laura, and introducing Parker. <laughs> Thank hey. you all. And uh, if the schedule holds, uh, we'll be talking with a lot of you uh, before March is through. Once again, I want to thank Leah and Patrick and Laura and Blake and, of course, Parker. Hi, Parker, for being on the show this week. Uh, It's been a minute since we did one of these and we will be doing some more soon. Uh, gonna, gonna keep them in the regular rotation. <laughs> Probably ought to do like one a month at the rate we're going. Uh, also make my job a little bit easy. 
anyway, uh, this has been a very long episode of just us talking uh, and just lots of different topics, uh, but still just the same group of folks. Uh, although, you know, I, you guys tend to love these. So uh, another reason why I think we're going to do more of them. And Parker and I are, are threatening at some point to do a Star Trek uh, podcast for uh, the backers because uh, we're both watching the Star Trek shows right now. Anyway. Um, if you're at South by Southwest, I hope you're having a good time. I hope that the FOMO article is useful to you. Uh, quick preview of next week's episode. Uh, Mark Simons, uh, the co-founder of Giant Spoon, uh, named the uh, number one most innovative advertising agency by Fast Company this year. Uh, and of course, they're behind all kinds of activations, as well as being like a full stack ad company. Uh, we have a fantastic conversation. Uh, it's in the can already, and you'll be getting it next Friday. So uh, we're, we're keeping going on. Also, fun fact, and this comes up in that episode, uh, I'm still using uh, his uh, his dongle that he gave me at IDS2 uh, for the MacBook. Uh, we, we needed one, and uh, and I just I just I have it still. So in in a very real way, uh, if it wasn't for Giant Spoon and Mark Simons, uh, the podcast wouldn't happen. It's how I connect to my monitor. A uh, little thing there. Why did I tell you that now? Because I'm looking at the dongle. That's why. All right. Enough of that. Um, have a good weekend. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll be back uh, next week. And, and hopefully I'll be able to say we cleared the 3000. Woo. Uh, now we got to push on to 4,000 cause, uh, Oh my God. Anyway, money, you just, you, you, you always need it. Right. All right. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, Let's do the credits. Credits. <laughs> We're the critics. Let's do the credits. Associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella, who you finally met. Music for No Presidium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. And all of this is my fault. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>